right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Originative Podcast. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic for Indigenous communities, missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Sissy Strong-Rays. She is Indigenous and Hispanic and is an Umatilla tribal member and descendant of the Yakima Nation. She was raised in Wapato, Washington, and now resides in Toppenish. Sissy is a powerful advocate for her sister, Rosenda Strong, who went missing and was found 275 days later, ruled a homicide. Since then, she has become a powerful advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women, posts flyers, supports others who are missing, and for the past three years has been posting every Red Thursday. So welcome, Sissy. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um... Okay, yeah, we can get started, whatever you want to ask. Um, um, it's been a journey. <laughs> we'll say that much. Mm-hmm. So thank you for having me today. And I am glad to be in this space to talk about my sister and my journey to being the advocate I am today. Absolutely. And I am so happy that I can help in any way to amplify your voice and your work. You really are a beacon of hope and light for your community. So I guess just to start off, um, if you don't mind, maybe you could just share a little bit about yourself and your journey and where it all started. Okay. Um, supporter as well as my own family. Um, I come from a background of Indigenous home. I grew up in an indigenous home. Um, Me and my sister were best friends, Rosenda, um, and our brother, Chris. Um, And about myself, um, I grew up in tough situations, but we always looked out for each other. Um, um, I'm from Wapato, Washington, um, born and raised and Fast forward all the way to, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a wife, I'm a relative and a friend. Um, My sister was a person I can go to. So she was a big part of my life growing up into our adulthood. Um, We struggled together and we struggled as a family and all of that is who I became today. So um, I'm very, very talkative to like, you know, community and stuff like that. Um, I'm a very outspoken person, very forward. And um, when my sister, she was just a big part of my life in our life. Um, We talked every day, we messaged every day. It didn't really matter where we were in our life. If we were struggling, we struggled together. If if it was just her or both, we struggled as a family. So coming from an indigenous home is very different from your American home, as I wanna say. We come from a family of alcoholism, drug addiction, and um, teen mothering. I was a teen mom. Um, I 
had my oldest son uh, a month after I turned 14 years old. Today he is 25. Um, so I struggle with a lot of that in in my life, but I we got through that part as a family. So being a teen mom, I started working early age, which was at 16, helped my mom pay bills. Um, I didn't finish school. I dropped out about ninth grade, which I am back in um, school today. Um, and fast forward all the way to 2018 is literally when my entire life and my family changed. Um, I am, my family calls me the backbone and I never really saw it that way. I just saw as my mom taught us growing up is to always look out for one another, especially our family and our people. Um, always have our doors open for family, which my mom has done and I have done. Um, I would like to think of myself as a person that has struggled with past trauma intergenerational trauma into today but I am being very very I was very hard on myself in the beginning because I thought everything was my fault that I didn't help my sister so I started shutting down after 2018 um, my sister went missing and that really put a lot of anger, hurt and stuff that I carried as well as not really dealing with my past trauma growing up. So that right there is what triggered all my, my traumas that I didn't know I had until we started looking for my sister in 2018. And I want to say that we did not have the law enforcement's help. Um, in 2018, um, we reported her missing, we gave locations of the last places that she would go. Um, and law enforcement just told us she's an addict. She's just out there doing drugs. So we're partying, she'll come home. They always do. But he wasn't listening to what I was telling him. He was only telling me what I wanted to hear. And that is, it, it was really devastating to me to be treated like my sister didn't matter. And made me feel like I couldn't go to law enforcement or trust them. Um, in the beginning, 
they wanted me to be quiet. They didn't want me to go looking for her. They didn't want me to put out flyers. They wanted me to hold off. And when they say someone's missing, the, four, the first 48 hours is the most crucial. And at the time you think, okay, I'm gonna listen to the law enforcement, what they're telling me. But it was more than that on the reason why I wanted my sister looked for. It was because I had messages sent to me that my sister was bleeding. She was her and she wasn't okay. And the law enforcement said, you know, that's, those are rumors. We can't really go on that. And in 2018, I didn't know what to do. Honestly, um, I just knew that I was on my Facebook all day. Um, it affected my job. It affected my daily life. Um, it affected me as a person. And I say this because there is a lot of emotion behind my sister's story. Um, not knowing where she was at the time to the rumors being true. Um, in 2018, or I want to say about December, someone had messaged me and said to look for a freezer. And, you know, when you hear that, you're like, that's just crazy, you know, like, you don't want to think that that would happen. And my cousin, um, at the time, I was trying to get answers of, you know, where my sister was. Um, I reached out on social media. Um, I have done that a few other times in the, you know, before that and people, well, her friends or family would respond quickly like, oh, I saw her here or she's here. When I get there, I'll tell her that you're looking for her. And every time she would always, always find a way to call me, to message me or to video chat me because she knew if I was looking for her, like I want to hear her voice or I want to see her. And I wasn't getting anything on social media. It was silent. So that was a red flag for me. None of her friends commented on her post or mine. Like, oh, she was here. She was here. Um, I reached out to her friends that she hung out with for three years in the same circle. And none of them answered me or it was just an immediately block. They would block me. So my cousin Roxanne White had just shown up at my work one day um, in October and I didn't know she was coming. Um, she just said, you know, I'm here to help you. And I said, oh, you know, I had mentioned, you know, what the cops said. She's like, Look, Sam, I'm 
I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you, but they're not going to help you. That's why I came here to help you. I know what you're going through, and I have dealt with this before. Um, they're trying to keep you quiet by not getting your sister's picture out there and telling law enforcement does that. We need to go to the streets and pass out flyers, say her name, and get attention to Rosenda because she's missing. And that day she walked in is the day that really opened my eyes to the damaging checkerboard that we have as indigenous people and all the laws into that jurisdictional laws was really, really putting, uh, you know, putting up stops for us in that situation because, you know, most of the, it was really hard to get tribal officers to help with the search or to lead it or to just help us get the attention out that my sister was missing and it was not like her. And that was the day I started really advocating for my sister because she was now listed at a, as a missing person to nobody's seen her. Nobody's looking for her. And so I used social media as best as I could. And some thought like, you know, you post every day. Do you really think she's gonna, you know, someone's gonna tell you? Do you really think Sharon is gonna find her? Which we were out there looking, putting up flyers. Um, always on social media because that was the big key to everybody communicating just through Facebook Messenger. And then in December, I get a message to look for a freezer. And I know it sounds crazy, but I, at that point, I was going, telling law enforcement, uh, my cousin, and my social media account that to be on the lookout for some type of an appliance like a freezer or a stand-up freezer because not only one person but three other people have told me that's what my sister is in. And I didn't want to believe it at first. Nobody does. Um, so I started messaging my family that I knew worked like with the irrigation through the Yakima Nation. So I messaged him and just told him, you know, if you see a freezer in the back roads or anything like that, um, can you please call the cops? Because more than a handful of people are saying that's what my sister's in and they don't know how to get rid of her. Um, so that's what we looked for. And then 275 days later, 
on July 4th of 2019. I was at work. Um, I was working in Yakima at the hotel and there was a TV on and normally when I walk into a room, I usually shut everything off and something told me not to. So I happened just to hear as I'm walking out of remains found in an abandoned freezer. And I remember just like, wait, what? And I backed up into the back into the room and started watching the news and I was at work and I could just hear the conversations from the other individuals telling me like, that's what she's in, that's what people are saying. Um, like, okay, this isn't a lie, this is real. And I immediately stopped what I was doing and I went to my car and I called my sister's FBI agent that works on her case. And I, I, I wanna say like I felt it over the phone because um, all she said was, I am out of town right now, sissy, but I'm actually leaving this conference to fly back. And I said, because it's my sister, right? She goes, I don't know. I couldn't tell you that, but I was asked to be flown back to Yakima. So I, I, I felt like I, I knew, but what led me to believe that was my sister was because those were the rumors going around for I want to say at least a couple weeks after she disappeared because I didn't know what to do with her body so I believe they probably drove around the 1.3 acre reservation. My sister was loved. Um, a lot of people loved her. And, and it's sad that the last ones I saw my sister leave with were her friends. And I'm, I'm just so glad that the last time I did see her, she told me she loved me. And she gave me the forehead kiss that she always did and said, I'll be back now and I love you. And that was the last time I saw her. Because she came home that night just to change her clothes. And when she would come here to change, she'd be like, okay, none of my stuff's all in that little bag right there. Um, can you just wash them? And so I have clean clothes. It was just a routine. It wasn't something she did like once in a while, it was all the time. So the relationship with me and my sister was, it didn't matter. She was incarcerated in treatment. 
or just out in recovery, she was always my sister. Um, I never, I tried my best not to be a judgmental sister, but coming from an indigenous home and that's all you grew up seeing and you don't want to see your, your siblings or your, your own children into drugs and alcohol. So I broke that cycle with my family. I don't consume alcohol. Alcohol is not allowed in my home. And all I wanted to do was just be a good family member and a big sister because I felt like I failed her by not making her get into recovery before she disappeared, which that's exactly what she was heading towards. She was telling me, I, I'm done with this. I can't do it no more. I just want to get clean and sober and I don't, I really think that she would have because she missed her kids. And Rosenda was a mother of four. And yes, she struggled really, really hard, just like any of us that come from an indigenous community or a home and really don't have um, both parents or one parent or grown up with aunt and uncle or grandma and grandpa. We're not taught grown up how to be, you know, we see things that we shouldn't at a young age, like drinking. And so, me and Rosenda shielded each other from harm growing up. I always made sure she was safe. My brother always made sure we were safe. And I do this continuously because, well, it hit my home and I took that very personal um, and I keep doing it because I don't want other families to think that is as far as I go as a flyer you can go a lot further you can tell your story you can I like to empower other families and amplify their voices because their loved one matters as well and we just have too many going missing around here where I live. I mean, there's, you know, my sister went missing and it was like another person, another person. And to see another missing flyer from my reservation is heartbreaking because It's a 
you know, I my sister is found and there are so many that are still searching and I know in my heart that I feel that we could be doing more for our community to be safer. And just being an advocate is very tiring. It's very heavy, but I wouldn't stop doing it because I know if I can empower one family or even one person to bring attention to their loved one and to know that their loved one does matter is it is more empowering to me to keep going not only for Rosenda but for many others that are still suffering in silence and it very, you really have to watch your mental state as well, um, mental health, because uh, if you're not well, you won't be able to be well for others. And I've just learned that because I wasn't chosen for this or picked. It was just my family was the one that, you know, my sister had to, I want to say uh, Elder had said, you know, that my sister's life may have been in shambles before she left or was murdered, but her life was a significant loss because now it has brought in the attention and awareness that we need here in this area. And she said, you know, it's, she'll always be remembered, but she has, will always be the one that had to lose her life. So others could be looked at as well. And to have the attention of Rosenda and others and just having waves throughout the community for missing people. So sometimes I have to take a break, but I can't take a break from not knowing who killed our sister and why because the only reason why i got is um and it was like the information i got was that they the people want wanted me to know this and and majority of the people my sister hung out with i either knew them from like school or around the way or worked with them but I never hung out in those circles. So I just knew some of her friends because I, like I said, I either went to school with them or I worked with them before and their loss. 
you know, rumors are, they're rumors, but when I advocate, I tell people or other family members, like, if you get information, I mean, even if it's hearsay, write it down, date it, and who told you, because that's what I did, and it actually opened up my eyes to who was trying to just have us fuel away from the truth to she was with her friends like there was so many things that she left treatment she left to um with the cartel drug dealer and she said she was going to california what they don't know is my sister whether she was sober intoxicated high she told me everything everything even if it was stuff i didn't want to hear she told me just and a month i want to say before she disappeared she told me nana if anything happens to me just know it was my friends and when i go back and think about these things it's like why didn't i try to intervene or do something or was that her cry for help and I missed it and I didn't know. So in the beginning, yes, I did walk around angry all the time. Um, I was, I probably looked bad, but I was actually hurting because they took my best friend from me and from my family, from her kids. Um, you know, that was my little sister I was supposed to grow old with, you know, watching our kids play together. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. And I keep going on this path, not for for all the right reasons that we need more funding for organizations to help indigenous communities in these situations. There are some, but to be actually doing the work for families getting out there, being boots on the ground, helping them pass out flyers, helping them put up flyers, creating a Facebook page and letting the family run the page so they have a sense of that they are fighting to find their loved one and that they're not giving up. And just to have more help on you know with law enforcement teaming up if there's a missing person in our area i believe all law enforcement should know tribal sheriff state or city cop you know when my sister first went missing um you know my sister wasn't perfect she had a criminal background so one of the cops um, that knew her, 
he was um, a city cop, but went to be a sheriff. And he stopped by and said, you know, the only picture I have of her is um, her jail photo. And I don't want to be passing that around. Do you have flyers made yet? And I didn't know, but he's like, oh, I saw your page that you made for your sister. And I'm sorry that you haven't found her yet. I see that it's been a while, so I thought I'd stop by and pick up a flyer from me just so I could pass it on to other officers in, you know, Yakima area. He thought maybe she's hiding. And I thanked him. So it's been a very, very sad, depressing, and sometimes relieved in this, in my sister's journey, because we couldn't find her. That was the most, I don't know how I slept or how I got through some of those nights. Mm. I don't know how her daughter did it. Um, she's 20 years old now. And she is struggling really bad without her mom. Um, but we're a family and we stick together. And it's just so, it is really hard to navigate through the trauma of having someone in your family go missing and then to be found in a way that nobody should be found in. Because when they found her, she was in the freezer. And they had, the FBI had her remains from when they found her July 4th, 2019. And she was finally released to have a burial and we just buried her last year on September 25th of 2021. So from 2019 till they released her remains, we have not gotten any information. I have asked. Um, we as a family still don't know if Rosenda had shoes on, if she had clothes on. They just left us with, you have her back. And that was it. Um, her memorial's coming up, which is this month on the 25th. Um, When we buried her, it was some some release of I didn't have to 
think of the things of like where she could be or where she lays. Is she really in a freezer? And to be found less than four miles from my home and a freeway that I have to go down all the time. And she was found on Highway 97 at milepost 6400. So that on the freeway, it would be milepost 64. And it was in an area that the FBI did search, but did not search thoroughly. Um, my sister didn't deserve to be killed over something that was stolen. And she didn't deserve to be... I don't know if she was packed around or drove around the reservation or how long she was in the freezer or was it plugged in? Did the freezer um, belong to anyone? We're still sitting with those questions yet with no answers. And it's frustrating because they give us the same answer over and over to we can't give out that information, we're still investigating it. But those questions about being clothed, having shoes on, we would like to know. And they still haven't told us. So that has been one of the things since we buried her that has been bothering me as a family member, as an advocate. I hope no other families have to go through that. To having her held that whole time and not saying like, hey, you know, we, we found this in the freezer or, you know, like even just telling us as a family and not just basically that's how I see it. We have her back and they don't want to help continue to find out who killed her and, uh, and why. But the last one she was with were her friends. So that's how that has been going as far as posting on Thursdays I have been doing for the past I want to say since 2019 and I just posted this past Thursday and I've noticed that I've must have triggered a wave in my post because I had almost 150 shares and that usually never happens. So as a family member, all we want is clarity into what happened to Rosenda. How did she get into that freezer? Was she clothed still in the same 
where we were, where we just asked and they haven't got back to us yet. So it's been a very, very heavy journey, but as well as bringing awareness to like our communities. Um, we just set up um, over in Seattle a couple months ago. Um, my cousin Roxanne has um, the missing and murdered indigenous women and people. And she puts families first, as well as that's who I am. I don't want to call it mentoring, but I follow her work and she's been helping us as a family and supporting us in everything that we do for Rosenda. And if it wasn't for Roxanne White, my cousin, I honestly don't know if Rosenda would be known today if she wouldn't, if she didn't come and help me literally grabbed me by the hand and said, we're going to do this together and we are going to find Rosenda. And we're going to fight for her justice if she is not okay. And it's just, it's really, really hard to talk about like the police part because it's, I just feel like they didn't really help us. And I hope today that with all the work that all the advocates been doing for families and survivors in these last couple of years, I've seen a little bit of changes and more help and more programs for this and because we have many missing people and it is heartbreaking to keep posting flyers over and over and over and then having me to where i have to post every thursday because my sister still needs justice yeah feel like law enforcement can at least give us something you know mm -hmm. Jeremy, can you give me the napkin? Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I really, you know, um, respect all of your courage and, you know, strength for pushing through all that you've experienced. Um, I think you have like really valuable things to share. So thank you for, for sharing all that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just as a follow-up, um, what do you think is the root cause of all of these cases? So, you know, as we all know, like, there are, you know, unfortunately, like an increasingly large number of women who go missing every year and in so many places, uh, not all, only all over the country, but also in Canada and many other places. So um, if you could just tell us, like, what do you think is the root cause and main reason that this happens? Um, I think it is because human trafficking um 
some of, I think a lot of it is human trafficking and to the extent of they, indigenous women have targets on their backs no matter what because they look at us as a high commodity of exotic people. We, and we will not be looked for and nobody will look for us because of that's how it's been for many, many, many of years. Um, so I believe there is human trafficking and I believe that is one of the roots of it to drugs and crime would be like the last, but human trafficking is real. Uh, sexual exploitation of women. Um, but I really believe that's how most of our indigenous women have gone missing is because they were abducted and they know like we are broken. Um, we come from broken backgrounds. Um, so to them, we are a high commodity because nobody, they think no one's gonna look for her. No one's gonna care because that has been the stigma of the media and not looking for us when we go missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is very insightful. And, you know, just to follow up on that, um, why uh, do you think that this is becoming such a big problem? Um, you know, it's really just expanding a lot more and obviously you guys are doing amazing work, but um, what do you believe is like the, the problem here that is causing this to become such a widespread epidemic? Um, well, I uh, the way I would see it from my point of view would be alcohol, drugs, and gangs. Um, in the areas that I frequently is because they took something or um, they owe people money and they are, I believe that they're probably messing around with the wrong people. Like there are cartel members all over the world. I mean, I was just watching my news station and they just busted a high um, cartel, I guess a very, very dangerous cartel with all kinds of guns here in the Yakima Valley. So I believe that's part of it is the violence and it's the drugs. The drugs have a big factor in it just because it's coming from all different directions. There's um, the fentanyl thing happening to where people are using or maybe overdosing and they're getting rid of the body. And some people go missing because maybe they do owe people money. Maybe they do owe that drug dealer. So to me, that is one of the reasons. And then the other reason would be because it's this, there's human trafficking everywhere. 
under our noses. Like, um, there's always were things around in my general area that I have seen, like, I wouldn't think that would be seen in my area, you know, like, um, always having different things happening at parks. Um, we can't go to the parks no more because there's paraphernalia everywhere. So it's a big factor, I would want to say, with drugs and gang violence and just that would probably be the main ones and human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so from all your experience, what do you think is one of the ways that this can be solved? And what are the main ways that we can help reduce all of this uh, violence that is caused by drugs and alcoholism? Um, well, I would, we do need more um, like reservation wise. I would think that the the police officers that work on the reservations are under federal laws. So I believe that if they could be not lenient on to traffic laws and to crime and make them spend that amount of time behind bars and not just a slap on the hand for getting pulled over and being intoxicated, majority of the time I see them just parking the car and letting that individual go. And that shouldn't be happening. If a state cop, a sheriff, and a, you know, can, you know, if I was to be drinking and driving, I would have that option to have a tribal cop come. That's not, I get it, we have our laws for sovereignty, but that is making it worse because I believe that if we as a non-native, you know, example, say I'm not native, but I was to cause a crime on their land, they can't prosecute me. So I think if they're under a federal, federal laws and stuff like that, then they should be able to prosecute anyone you know, Hispanic, Native American, white, um, anyone. But it doesn't work that way. And I think if the laws change just a little bit to help the the indigenous community grasp the crime, the gang violence, um, kids dropping out of school, teen parenting, they have all these programs being funded by the government. Why not put boots on the ground, get out there, start asking questions, get answers, go to um, the local law enforcement and ask them, why is it okay for me to break the law here? But if I go here, I'm going to go to jail. But if I do it here, I won't go to jail. Mm -hmm. So I think if we, I, as an indigenous woman, I believe that the laws that tribal carry and perform should be the same laws that a Washington state trooper has, as well as a sheriff, a city cop, um, that if they would just join together and talk to each department, and if they all worked as a team and not like, oh, well, I don't help them because they're tribal, or I don't help them because they're sheriff's department. 
you get into law because you want to protect and serve. So protect and serve. I mean, there is no, to me, there shouldn't be a different law from a different law. Like, how are you gonna, I just believe that if tribal cops got the same amount of training and stuff for like how to approach homeless, how to approach a youth, how to approach um, anybody in distress, like that's mm -hmm. homeless. Um, I think it would work out better and the crime would probably go down if the cops wouldn't, were they're not so leaning on people that are breaking the law. If you're breaking the law, I believe that you should be detained by the officer that pulled you over until they can figure out what they're going to charge you with. And I believe um, just cracking down on violence and not letting any community member get away with breaking the law as to like, you know, getting caught in public, you know, being underage and intoxicated or under the influence. Um, if they get caught with a gun at school and they're underage, they should go to jail for that because we do not know if that person's gonna cause harm in the near future if they were trying to do it at a younger age. So I think my opinion, it would, if all law enforcement would just work together and be, as they say, what, a team, I think we would have more safe and more commitment to our communities to as protect and serve. So that way, if they know there's going to be cops roaming the streets all night long, there's not going to be a lot of crime at night to be broken because we got there's a lot of cops out now. So, and then just having more neighborhood watches more. And if I think too, if law enforcement knows, okay, we know that's a drug house. Okay, then go shut that house down. They should not be selling drugs there. They shouldn't be distributing drugs into our community, period. So I think that should change as well to be a better and safer community, not for us today, well, for us today, but actually more for the future as well, because our future is our grandkids or our, you know, younger siblings or nieces and nephews that are one years old, two years old, they are the ones that are going to have to be fighting probably the biggest fight of their life by the time they get to my age or your age, you know, to where we should just start trying to change something now before that happens. So I really think if all law enforcement would just work together, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, I think, a great idea. And I hope that can happen soon. That would be amazing. It would create a lot of wonderful um, repercussions for the community. Yes. So in, in terms of that, what do you think can be done to get that ha to happen soon? I mean, um, what do you think should be done? 
Um, I think what should be done is having family members, advocates that have been bringing attention to these type of issues in our community, as well as standing up for things that we should have in our community, you know, um, like Neighborhood Watch. I think if we wanted something to happen, I think we'd have to go to their, you know, like here it would be, I would probably choose downtown Yakima right there in front of the federal building and start marching like we need action and you guys can help us make that change. And at least for them to listen to family members, advocates, to survivors even, um, to change the laws for the better because I just don't think it's working how it is right now. Mm -hmm. So I would take it to the streets of, you know, like a, like a big community march and just march right there to the federal building and ask them to come out and to listen to us on our concerns and why we think that laws should change and to be better or even just to hear the community out and to maybe change even if they can't change all of it i'm sure they can change some of it absolutely so community change is definitely i think always the answer and that creates a lot of support so i i think mm -hmm. that's a good idea yeah. yeah and i guess on that terms like what if you had to give a message to the community what would you say and what would you encourage people to do um i would encourage people to be more more compassionate and kind to your community members because we do not know what they are going through um and i believe that if we all paid attention to everything around us we might be able to help in some way. If not, we might be able to start a new beginning for our community that we need and that we've been wanting for many, many of years and that's no violence. Down to, you know, like no abductions, no missing kids, no kids on runaway. Um, so my message, if I was to give out a message, I would tell my community, please be, be vigilant and please always look out for your family members, your friends. Um, always question things. And too, if you see something, say something because there is too much silence going on, too much silence being amplified to younger generations and stuff like that when, no, if you see something, say something. You could possibly do something good. You could possibly save somebody's life. You could possibly change somebody's life. It is so good to see that the awareness of missing and murdered has amplified and made waves through Indian country, not be because 
it was because our loved ones had to pay a price and that we will never get back. So we step in for that family member and we amplify their voices to bring awareness. And I thank all my community members for the shares on Facebook for amplifying my voice to be an advocate for my sisters and the strong who did not deserve to go missing and did not deserve to be murdered and did not deserve to be put in the freezer for 275 days. Everybody needs to be more compassionate towards others as well. And I do not wish this pain and heartache on anyone, even the ones that took my sister. I just want you to do the right thing and come forward on why you killed my sister and why you had to kill her for something so small. Please watch out for your community members because everybody is loved no matter what, homeless or not, you are, someone out there loves you. And I pray for everybody in my community or Indian country going through this. And it is not something I wish on my next door neighbor or my enemy, because it's heavy. It's, you go through one hell of a roller coaster of emotions that I don't wish on nobody. But take care of each other and always look out for one another. That's a really good message. And it's very heartfelt, I think. And it shows a lot of your, the strength that you have. That's amazing. And yeah, just, um, you know, I really want to support you. I know a lot of people want to support you. So what are some things that people can do, um, especially non-natives, to support the cause of fighting against MMIW? Um, to donate to mmipandfamilies.org. Um, everything goes back um, to the families. Um, everything that is donated to mmip.org and families. Um, we help families with hotel rooms if they need other family members flown in. Um, you can donate to that organization as well as Mother Nation. Um, MMIW USA has tremendously helped me and my family in ways putting food on the table to help me pay a month's rent. Um, so there are organizations and those are the ones that have really helped me and my family. I know there's are, there are more, but those are the ones that have supported me, my family, helped us get to the burial in Oregon for my sister and back home. So I'll say it one more time. Um, mmipandfamilies.org, which is under organization for Roxanne White and, and myself and Mother Nation and Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA. And that would be Deborah Maytubi, 
those are the organizations that have helped and tried their best to keep flyers going, um, posters, um, banners, um, and other ways is sharing the missing flyers on social media. Um, every share counts. Um, sharing is caring is what I've been saying because that means we do care and those people that are missing are cared about and love. So share the missing flyers of indigenous community members and um, reach out and, you know, if you see a, a vigil, a march, come join because we can use and need all the support we can get from community members to make it be known that this epidemic needs to end of missing and murdered indigenous women and people. And the families are always, always come first and survivors. We put them first as well as amplifying them. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing all those ideas. Uh, and I definitely think that in today's world, like sharing all those stories and flyers and posting that, getting that out there is really important. So yes, definitely. So yeah, I'd also just like to ask you a little bit about um, what it is like for you now. Um, you know, what has your healing journey looked like and um, what are some things that you are working on now for yourself? Um, for myself, I actually just did my intake to get a therapist so I can work out my past traumas that I've had in my life that have actually re-triggered um, I didn't know I had, so it was, I guess they were just kind of dormant and healing. I've been doing a lot of praying, um, a lot of family time. I've been smudging, which is, um, you know, a way of prayer and cleansing myself, um, of negative energy or if I just feel negative. Um, I've been doing a lot of talking my problems out with my family members or my husband, my sons, um, trying to be in a better light with myself is to letting myself know that everything that I have gone through is for a good but it is not my fault. And I had to really pick myself up and try to be happy. But today I feel in the past like six months, I have let go a lot of anger, um, a lot of sadness, and I have lifted my head back up to people in front of me not always walking with my head down and looking like I'm mad at the world. Um, I have been more outgoing and just trying to find who Sissy is again and not just Rosenda's sister. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And it's really important to take care of yourself as well. Yes. So yeah, um, 
just to sort of wrap up, do you have any final comments that you'd like to share and final messages? Um, yes, I would just like to say, um, you know, thank you for being so patient with me and thank you for um, listening and wanting to hear Rosenda's story and for always um, telling me good words and things I'm really not used to hearing. And I appreciate that. Um, and I really wanna get out there that um, you can follow MMIWP and families on Facebook. And if you can share out the flyers that have been circulating, um, just like um, now there is a four-year-old boy missing from Yakima, Washington. And um, I can't imagine what his parents are going through. Um, so please share those flyers it could possibly have someone remember or trigger something that maybe they saw something and to never just always remember if you see something say something because that's and always watch your surroundings always 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 look around before you walk out to your car or if you don't feel safe walking to your car, please ask somebody if you're in a store, um, your local Walmart, ask somebody to walk you to your car because it's just been, a lot of things have been going on in parking lots. So I really want that to be out there of just to be very, very careful. If you're going to the store alone, please tell somebody where you're going at home and how long you're gonna be gone and tell them i'm telling you this because it's just world is not safe anymore and mm -hmm. always keep an eye out for others and always be compassionate and kind because i've just learned that this year too that that compassion can go a long ways and Justice for Rosenda Strong. Thank you. Justice for Rosenda Strong. Thank you so much for your interview. And um, I really appreciate all your time and everything you're doing for the community is important and it's making a difference. And I hope that, you know, you will get some closure and support in the coming time. So yeah. keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will. Right. And also, um, if you can text me, um, I would like to send you a t-shirt. Oh, um, sure. yeah. So if you want to text me, um, I have two actually that I want to send. So um, whenever you get time, you can just send me where you want me to send it and I will get it out in the mail for you. Sounds good. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. All right. Thank you so much again. You're have welcome. a Yep, you too. Bye. Bye.